0: I'm Steve Backshall and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here and I'm here of course with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. Wayne Boardman, wildlife vet, our friend and neighbour. Welcome Wayne. Nice to be here, guys. First show back for the year and the big story, the country's on fire.
2: Yes, isn't it terrible? I, I can't help but feel totally depressed someone used the term eco depression just recently which is a new term on me but eco anxiety anxiousness but i i'm furious i'm angry i'm really upset about all the things that are going on because i know that something could have been done many many years ago to try and prevent some of these issues that have occurred i know bushfires have are part of the australian landscape and always have been and always will be but perhaps to the extent and ferociousness of these fires and the extended time period unprecedented and unforgiving bushfires that have just
1: caused a national tragedy Eco depression that's a it's an interesting way to put it isn't I mean, I I reckon I've had that in the past, just even not even to do with fires, just looking around at just the impact that we have on the planet just by the sheer numbers of us. I'd be sitting in a car on a hot day, everybody's bumper to bumper in traffic, and there was a time where we would have walked down a path through bushland to do what we had to do during the day. And I know that sounds a bit well do you want to go back and be like an indigenous person or do you want to have an iPhone there's got to be a way we can mesh the two together I know that's getting very philosophical but eco-depression I I guess I sort of dealt with that in a way because I just realised well I can only do what I can do, I've got to try to move forward but the fires for me have been really confronting because like yourself we live here in the woods, you know, in, in the forest surrounded by eucalypts which like to burn so I find that terrifying
2: oh, and, and so do, do we i mean we've been lucky where we are in in my law that the fires haven't come through yet they might well do over the next few months or they might do in the next few years um but you know to see what's been happening up in Lobethal and cuddly creek woodside and so on friends of mine affected kathy you know gumaraka second time she had she was involved and had the the uh, Samson Flat fire come uh, to her door, and she had this another fire. Friends lost their property. Friends on ki have lost their property as well. So it becomes more close to you. You can smell it. I don't know on, on Thursday night whether you woke up smelling the air. It woke me up at you know two o'clock in the morning. The smell just woke me up, and I thought, what the heck is going on? And I could feel it in the back of my throat. You know. And, it's the immediacy of all these sort of things not not that we have anything to complain about in comparison to those poor people that have been cut up in malakuta and kangaroo island and you know lodges been burnt down and farms gone and people dying and you know it's an utter tragedy what can we do about it is there anything that we can do about it into the future that that's what we need to think about
1: yeah it was a very somber christmas wasn't it i mean you you're sitting at home with your family in your house that hasn't burnt down and you're feeling guilty. Your heart goes out to people that have, you know, gone through these fires. What can we do about it? I mean, you you want to say, like, we need leadership? We certainly do need leadership and we certainly don't have
2: leadership, in my opinion, uh, at at the moment. They've certainly stepped up over the last uh, week or so, but prior to that, there's been... No leadership about climate change, and certainly no no leadership in terms of how to work and support communities during the bushfire season. But but at last, you know, even even today, they're talking about having a royal commission into the bushfire season, which is uh, uh, an absolute essential thing There has to be an independent review of the bushfire season and the causes of it and i hope you know if that does occur and it should occur that they, it becomes quite clear that there is a definite connection to climate change for these bushfires and that we need to start to reverse some of the climate change um, issues you know just start it, mitigation adaptation uh, approaches to trying to prevent the worst effects of the climate change because i just think it's just the beginning now i think you know this is probably going to be the new norm that we're going to have to cope with you know i just read recently professor bowman from uh, university of tasmania i think it was said we maybe we need to think about having holidays summer holidays at different times of the year it's too dangerous to think about going on holiday all those people that were going to the south uh, of new south wales or going to the Lakes Entrance or Malacuta for holiday, you know, at this time. Displaced people, you know, not being able to get back home, all, all those sort of things. You know, and all the pressures that are then put onto those communities by act- actually having extra tourists in the area. Tourism is a massive part of Australia. It's like third or fourth biggest income to to australia so we need to look at that but then if we don't have these places then no one's going to come all the losses to tourism in in kangaroo island people are not coming to australia not coming to kangaroo island for the next few months because they, they think there's nothing to see and and uh, it's too scary you know people are scared so there's a whole raft of different things that we need to think about and we need leadership for sure we don't we've not had good leadership I think, I think there are lots of good quality people, the Tim Flannery's, the Ross Garno's of this world, who are you know, expert leaders, Chris Dickman, you know, a lot of the scientists that are, are being ignored on a daily basis, which is a tragedy.
0: What a shame that when you talk about Kangaroo Island and tourism and that, it's taken a, a massive disaster, predicted disaster, to, to probably uh, make a big difference to our economy, to possibly even cut the government into doing something about it. But what a shit way round of doing it.
2: Well, it's it's ironic, isn't it, really? You know, you don't put any money up front to try and prevent things. It's all about the treatment, the the, the repairs. Mm. You know, anybody can look good when you're going to put... uh, sort of respond to tragedies, you know? Even George W. Bush, Bush... you know, looked quite good when he was responding to Hurricane Katrina. It took him a while to get the idea of it, but you know, the, these, uh, you know, that's where leaders should be stepping up in those. But proper leadership should be about prevention. Shouldn't be putting their voters, or the people of Australia, or the people of any country, in those sort of situations in the first place. They should be protecting the people in the first place not
1: having to look after them at at the end you know when we've had the bushfires go through it's a tricky thing because a lot of people don't agree on why we're having bushfires a lot of people feel like you know there's the science and then there's the people that feel like well we've always had fires and the climate's always changed and those people need to step back and find a spot where they can agree what's the harm in reducing our fossil fuel use and using alternative energies Well, one point there
2: is that, you know, the the politicians who are beholden to vested interests, often um, supported by, you know, press that is less than uh, authentic and uh, incorrect, like the Murdoch press, um, The when you're in that sort of situation, uh, you've got, you know, a massive things to think about.
1: That's an interesting point um, made about having holidays at different times because we, we had a holiday booked. We were going to go away over Christmas and leave the place here, you know, unattended during the, the fire season. So it's a great point.
2: Oh, uh, and, it, and it's fair enough, you know, Like we need to think about those sort of things. And, and I think the whole issue that's occurred over the last few months, you know, the fact that it starts in August, September and is probably going to go through to March, you're probably going to have you know across the country you're going to have you know upwards of half or to, to even two-thirds of the year where there's going to be fires across the Australian landscape ridiculous you know and you know locally you know I think South Australia's you know December to have fires in December but also to have this unprecedented heat that we've had you know the heat waves we had a heat wave well a heat, heat day uh, could call it a mini heat wave if you want in November, and we lost, for example, about 500 flying foxes down at the Botanic Gardens um, back camp um, on that day. And then when the heat wave came through into December, so uh, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th of December, those four days, uh, all above 40 degrees, we lost around about 10,000. Bats on that uh, over those four days, just here in Adelaide. Just here in Adelaide. Wow. So of the twenty thousand that were there, ten thousand died. So that's fifty percent of the, that population. Now, not sure whether that sort of is mirrored across the country, but people have said that's probably the biggest die-off of flying foxes at one heat event in the history of Australia right. for one particular camp. So you know a- absolute dire dire sort of situation and and so as a consequence uh a lot of those bats were brought although uh, well, not the dead ones of course but the ones that were close to dying that were saved by fauna rescue in particular but with the zoo and city council and the botanic gardens there's about between 400 and 450 in care um, that are being looked after. These are orphans before they can be released in the next uh, couple of months. And um, at the moment, we, my wife and I, it's mostly my wife, she does most of the work, we have 118 of those flying foxes at home. Um, so we're chopping up lots of fruit uh, and you know, treating some of the animal, uh, issues with those animals uh, at the moment. But, and we're also looking to have... Um, release them here in the future in south australia in the past when we've had orphans that have been hand raised or cared for we've released them in Yarra Bend. but because of all the issues occurring everywhere else we can't inflict that many number of animals can't take them over that it's very difficult to do so we've got to look at how we can release them here so I'm, i've Get getting my banding licence so I can band them so we can find out how successful they are um, and and one of the things I'm working with at the moment uh, or working on at the moment is with uh, SA Water, uh, the City Council, WOMAD, Botanic Gardens um, Fauna Rescue is to try and develop high level misters and sprinklers in the trees in the botanic Park where the bats are to try and reduce the temperature, uh, with the misters but provide them with water for hydration as well because we when we've noticed when we've put sprinklers on at the low level which is where we standard where we generally from a standard perspective have the sprinklers um the bats come down to get that water to try and cool off and there's, there's a noticeable cooling effect but often it's too late and it's a bit of scary for a flying fox to come all the way down to the ground to be you know vulnerable to predators they i'd rather them be up there and have uh, sprinklers on them and misters on them. So there are a couple of places that have been looking at this uh, as, uh, across the country, but we want to try and do it in a, in a way that we can actually get as much good research on this to look at what a, what the temperature reduction is, how it affects humidity, how it uh, affects morbidity and mortality of those flying foxes. want to put students on to try and help get that information. But, and it's not going to be a panacea. It's not going to stop the the flying foxes dying, but if we can reduce the numbers and so we don't have a mortality event of 50, 50%, then it's got to be a, a winner, you know, if we can do... And, and it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's very little cost. SA wards are coming up with all the misters and piping and the botanic gardens are really f- um, helpful on trying to... Um, facilitate all this. City council want to put uh, some of these misters and sprinklers on some of the council land as well where the flying foxes might go but it also might have an effect on other species as well. Certainly when I was down there before Christmas I was seeing possums on, dead on the ground, in the open you know, just died of heat, you know, they couldn't cope any further, you know uh, and it's been the, uh, you know ridiculously horrible sort of situation to see and we just keep thinking you see, it keeps getting worse year on year. You know, we've had these bats now for nine years and the heat stress events have occurred over the last two or three years. They've got worse and worse and worse. And so we're going to be seeing it more and more occurring over the year, we think. And how can we prevent it? You know, let's we've got to start thinking in an innovative way, you know, just start thinking out of the box
1: to try and prevent
2: Reduce morbidity and mortality in these these issues. That's the terrifying
1: part, isn't it? All the predictions say it's going to get worse and worse. And just to touch on your point, we when you say we've only had them here for nine years, they they weren't really here, were they? The grey-headed flying fox, Australia's biggest fruit bat, one metre wingspan, would turn up occasionally as a vagrant. But they've they're here to stay now.
2: The, the, they are here to stay because we. Oh, well, Adelaide, not me, but we in Adelaide provide a uh, good source of food because we planted quite a lot of exotic plants to South Australia like lemon-scented gums and canary date palms and you know some of the other eucalyptus trees that aren't seen necessarily in south australia they've been planted here in back people's back gardens or in plantations or in parks and the figs and all that sort of thing so these are nice ready source of food and so at some stage they decided to come across from the east to south australia and they thought this is a great place we're gonna stay. Um, however, what we've noticed with some of our research is that the, the body condition tends to be better in winter and less good in summer. And so what, what we've seen is often there's a bit of an influx of co- um, flying foxes in in winter to Adelaide and then few leave in December, January anyway to go to the eastern states because the condition when we've looked at the condition the condition's is better in winter and in summer which is opposite to the eastern states which is quite interesting so so they're finding food particularly in winter when it's wet and we also irrigate our gardens as well and we you know that, that's really great for those animals um one of the other things that we've been doing just recently is i've been working with western sydney university and we've just recently put some more data loggers inside the abdomen of um, the flying foxes to look at how they cope with the temperatures Uh, and so the phd student melissa walker is looking at how they how they manage to cope with the temperature so looking at the uh, ambient temperature outside and what is the body temperature the core body temperature and we've she's already found information to suggest that they go the body temperature goes up to over forty-one degrees centigrade. Standard body temperature should be about thirty-eight or so. So they're co- coping them with three degrees increase, um, which, which is uh, interesting to know. But also, she's found out that in in winter, when it's cooler, that they can actually reduce their core body temperature maybe by a few degrees as well to save energy. So, which is a you know a, a, a daily. Torpa, you know mini torpor so that's a kind of interesting information that's coming out of that and then also at the same time we put in put on a bunch of um satellite tracking collars with john martin from the trongas zoo who's the ecologist there and we found some really interesting information already so as soon as the collars were put on we were worried afterwards that some of these, this was done in early December, we were concerned that some of these animals may have died and all the ones that had the collars on are, are all working and survived and we found uh, a small camp down inland from Kingston in the southeast, in you know, at Wingala I think it is um, in a pine plantation is a 200 a population of 200 flying foxes have found this little pine plantation not going to get any food from there but they're going to fly out from there to get food and two of the bats that we put collars on have gone down there <laughs> would you believe out of all the animals that we could <laughs> that we could have um, potentially put collars on two the two mates obviously fly together have gone down there but we're noticing where they're flying ar- ar- across the uh, adelaide landscape and it's been really interesting so
0: far but why, why have they gone from New South Wales, eastern states and places and probably tropical areas? Why are they coming our way? It doesn't sound the best area for them to come to.
2: Well, it has to be resource related. It has to be resource related. So they're, they're going, bats can fly big distances. They can fly 400, 500, 600 kilometres a night if they want to. Uh, big distances to go very high and fly big distances if they want to um and uh, but what is the stimulus for them to come over here what why would you think as a bat you know put your
0: bat uh, i'll put my bat head on (laughs) I'll put your bat head head on
2: (laughs) why would i go west to adelaide you know is it worth the risk of me spending all that energy to go to adelaide to see if there's any food see if there's anything so I think what they probably do incrementally they travel along the landscape just seeing where there might be food and how they make these decisions to go further but it's got to be related to resources they wouldn't be flying if it wasn't for a resource limitation that might have been occurring in New South Wales and Victoria there's there's Definitely the grey headed flying foxes fly, I'll go from roundabout Ingham all the way down to in Queensland, all the way down to South Australia. Even the black flying foxes have come further south now, down into the Sydney area. They are always used to be much further up towards the northern part of uh, New South Wales, but they come down to the Hunter Valley and now down to Sydney. So, so there's, there's a move across the landscape. But is that related to the fact that there is not enough? eucalyptus trees blossoming at the right time and therefore they're looking for more resources why is there no eucalyptus blossom flowering at a particular time it's likely water in the table uh, the the water table of the the landscape so there's not enough water to produce the flowers so is it related to climate change it's hard to really truly tease that out yet but but certainly, if the the resources aren't there in those normal areas, is it because habitat has been shrunk because of uh, encroachment by people, um, could, you know, logging or whatever, or is it due to uh, there's not enough flowering, and therefore there's not enough food? And certainly, over the last few months in the eastern states, um, there's been lots of die-offs of youngsters. So, mum mum has not been able to get enough food and therefore not producing much milk and they've been finding lots of youngsters around on the ground so so that kind of links into the fact that there's not enough resources occurring and that's possibly why or likely why they've moved down to South Australia because of those resource limitations over there maybe we might get resource limitations over here but what we're doing, we've got only got you know a 20,000 population prior to these bushfires and this season, there was around about six hundred thousand. I, I won't be surprised if that those numbers have plummeted. They're they're classified as vulnerable, so that you know they're on the list of threatened species. And I can't help but think that the numbers have gonna have gone down over the last few months. And so when they do the next counts, do do those bats have the ability to rebound in numbers? Yes, they do because. You know, they live for a long time um, and they produce one animal a year, but it's always going to be related to the resources that are available. And then you add on heat stress events, as we call it, where, you know, the body shuts down above 42 degrees centigrade. You know, it's incompatible with life. So you've got that resources, lack of resources and heat stress events, then they're going to have, a, a, you know, a pretty devastating effect on one of our most iconic species the the, one of the species that's important in um providing uh uh, seed dispersal and pollination across the landscape
0: it's a big worry like when you say that they're being driven away from where they probably ideally used to live in in an ideal situation they're being driven to somewhere like south australia where three four five six months of the year is going to be too hot and too dry for them like it sort of tells you what decimation's going on in the east coast for them
2: as well. On top of yeah. scary. Yeah. And you know, if you, if they were to come to Adelaide without human, uh, you know, humans being in Adelaide mm. like prior to um, colonization, then it would have been a really dry landscape and not suitable. They Almost probably wouldn't. They probably wouldn't have mm. come. Mm. But because we have
1: irrigation irrigated
2: yeah, planted 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 irrigate and therefore there's enough food for them so they've they've come over so we've got six months a year where it's, it's terribly hot you know um so what do we do then so that's why my my approach is that because almost certainly this is to do with climate change um that we obligated to try and help them um you know any anthropogenic changes you know it's always been the case in working with animals if there's any issues that are so t- human associated like snares or or vehicles you know, vehicles or gun you know we, we have a bit of an obligation to try and help them you know where it might be natural then you know that's nature but I don't think this is natural anymore I think it's unnatural and we need to
1: help them and so 10,000 animals have perished here in Adelaide. And So, stupid question, they just fall out of the trees onto the ground?
2: Well, the, the first, there's actually a, 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 quite an interesting um, system that they follow, is that they, they're up in the top of the trees, then they start to flap. They use the wings to get evaporative cooling. And then they start, when that's not working, then they start to come down the trees into areas where it's slightly better shade. What happens then is they often clump together because they all want to go to the same place, and then that we think that produces a bit extra heat for those bats. It's a natural thing to come down to the cooler areas, but if they're all trying to do it in those same areas, then and then so they try to get into the shade, and then they will come ultimately then come down onto the ground, or they'll be just hanging in the trees. And if you if you went through the uh, botanic park uh, at that time, you will look up in the trees and you would see hundreds of dead bats hanging so they just hang and then they pass out and die because they've got this ability to cling to the branch and they just stay there and then the wind over the next week or two will blow the dead bats out of the tree some land on the ground beforehand but a lot of them are up in the trees dead
0: Wow. gosh, that's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. 10,000 out of 20,000, like half. That's that's a massive decimation of something
2: oh. It is it's and terrible. it and it's it's terribly tragic and that's why, you know, and you know the carers are doing an amazing job looking after those 4 400 450 animals, not entirely sure of the numbers at the moment because some, you know, have died while they've been in care because of the issues that they've had to face prior to that. But you know, that's why I think it's absolutely essential that we can try and do something about it and if we can put sprinklers misters up there the amount of water that we're going to use is absolutely minimal um, it's just getting the infrastructure up there we want to try and get some you know big cherry pickers up there 25 meter cherry picker things do it at night when all the f- bats are out foraging so we're not going to disturb them during the day put all these misters into the trees we get arborists going up there um, and put them in a few trees, and then mu- put we've got temperature loggers, humidity loggers in those trees, so we can get that information, and then monitor their behaviour. When we know the ambient temperature at Kent Town or West Terrace is going to be getting up there, put the sprinklers and misters on and see what their behaviour is, and see because I think my theory is that they will be attracted to where that moisture is. So if there's if they're in a tree where there's no moisture or in the direct sun they will go to this area because it's going to be cooler and misters can reduce
0: the temperature the ambient temperature 10 15 degrees it's amazing it's amazing it's a bit of a side story but when you're in outside gardens in pubs nowadays on a hot day they put their misters on and it is beautiful it just it, yeah, it, it drastically reduces it and it's so comfortable and, and nice
2: really fine fine mm. mist so you don't i mean you're going to get a little bit wet but mm. it's very fine it probably evaporates mm. pretty much at the same
0: time it makes as my hair it. very frizzy but. <laughs> what, what hair you've what got hair? steve yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you.
2: um, i had to get that one in uh, but it, but you know those those are sort of things that we need to think about because it's unsustainable that, that, those losses and i know it's only a, a microcosm of the population is in adelaide but why couldn't that be replicated across the country if we can develop some of these um, mitigation strategies or help preventative strategies here
1: why can't couldn't it be used on other camps in different places it's a great idea it's very convenient that they're all camped in the one spot too and not scattered throughout the landscape absolutely
2: we're very fortunate in that respect but it's also you know we've been doing we've been doing back camps with kids in october I had a, with the council and museum and lots of other people had kids coming through and then we've done bat rambles so we've had people uh, members of public coming with myself and jason and terry and we and annette and we wander around uh, the landscape telling them all about the bats you know and it's great that we've got this you know amazing population new new species in the adelaide landscape that's going to be here uh f- you know for a long time i feel um uh, and how amazing they are and you know trying to educate people about what they do and how important they are and, and, and last year at the womad uh, f- festival we set up a education tent so we had Sixteen hundred people come through talking to us about the the bats, um, the flying foxes, and we gave them the binoculars to look at them, and it was a fantastic success. You know,
1: I love them. I mean, we've got the worst mammal extinction rate in the world just here in South Australia, but then we've got a new one. Yeah, naturally, we didn't have to do anything. I mean, we have to p- protect them now, but it's great. We get dozens of them in the evenings fly over here, and they're yeah. huge animals. Oh, wonderful, impressive wonderful. animals.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot coming in this sort of um, southeast. Adelaide area, you know, Meadows, Macclesfield, Ichunga, Milo, Algate, at this time of the year, there's quite a few that we see coming over. And we've had them, we've actually had them coming into our garden into eating in a willow tree. Willow tree? Willow tree. Now, no scientific sense does that make whatsoever, except when we know that the willow tree's got aphids and the aphids are producing honeydew and they're probably licking the honeydew off the trees and possibly taking a few a bit of extra protein source as well so you know th- those th- those sort of weird adaptations that they might be doing themselves as well which is which is fantastic um so we just need to uh, think about how we can help them uh, and look at you know, managing them in the best possible way and we have You know, an obligation. Uh, As I said, it's a small population in the in the big context of things. But um, I
1: think there's things that we can do here that might help that species in the future. Who's funding your 113 fruit bets currently?
0: 118,
1: 118. Oh, it's yeah. gone up already <laughs> you said. no no you, you just weren't listening
0: <laughs> um, you drift didn't you yeah you, you know, drifted you know. <laughs> uh, uh,
2: we are get a, getting a little bit of support from Fauna Rescue um, and we get we've got a lot of goodwill from people donating fruit we've got a whole well, we just had some renovations done in the house we had a new bathroom so the old bathroom is now full of fruit boxes and boxes of fruit that have been donated which we can't use anymore um but which is fine um and we've you know so katrina my wife is spending six eight hours a day looking after them seven days a week and has been for the past three three weeks or so three four weeks yeah she's awesome that's a full-time job oh it is a full-time job yeah so you know we get a little bit of a little bit of support but you know some you know we've cutting fruit up on our kitchen bench you know 25 30 kilos a night um and that will get more as the animals get bigger before they get released uh ideally it would be nice to have somewhere outside where we could do it on a stainless steel bench and you know have a but we'll get there one day with a bit of divine intervention possibly no but uh, i th- i thought it was great that uh, Anthony Albanese, came over and actually went to the Adelaide Koala Rescue Facility at Paradise School Gymnasium uh, last week and and gave a real big uh, call-out for support for that organisation. And they've done an incredible job looking after the the koalas from the uh, Mount Lofty fires that occurred just before Christmas or just around Christmas. Uh, And they've got 120 there, I think, around about that at the moment. And, you know, they've done an incredible job trying to look after those animals. And, you know, again, on Kangaroo Island, with the fires that have gone through Kangaroo Island, there's been, you know, about 50% of the habitat has been lost. And from my understanding, from information from the Department of Environment, about 80% of those koalas on Kangaroo Island have died. So... 40,000 have probably died, and there's about 10,000 or so that may have survived. And that population is unique in Australia because it's chlamydia disease free. We've done, we did quite a bit of work. Jess Fabian, uh, w- one of our PhD students at uni, uh, was looking at chlamydia, wrote a paper on it, went into Nature Scientific Reports to show that from all the work that we'd done that they were free of chlamydia so that it becomes now an important population even though it's quite inbred because it the a population that came from french island originally that that population over there disease free on the mainland particularly in the eastern states the koalas have high levels of chlamydia retrovirus infection uh, lots of uh, infertility is a consequence of chlamydia infection in the mount lofty ranges we have much less clinical disease of chlamydia, but we do have uh, about 45% infection rate and about 2 to 3% clinical r- disease rate, much, much lower than in the eastern states. Then you go over to Kangaroo Island, and Kangaroo Island's got no chlamydia. So we are at, at pains, and I'm probably at pain with the Department of Environment, Trying to ensure that we keep that population disease-free, even though it's been decimated by the fires, you know, I'm I'm concerned that we don't want any koalas coming to the mainland and then going back to Kangaroo Island. It would be too much of a biosecurity risk. So I've been, you know, helping to put that message across because, you know, in in the future, they talk about the koala triangle in. New South Wales from Queensland through to New South Wales uh, and uh, sort of bottom end of New South Wales they call it that triangle but there's a population in in Victoria as well and there's quite good numbers sometimes down there but you know the numbers have probably been knocked off in New South Wales as well so you know you you start to think of koalas around the place our most iconic species loved by the world over everybody wants to help and support koalas um, and we might be having a population in decline as a consequence of these bushfires. On top of other species, glossy black cockatoos, Kangaroo Island Dunnets, there's a lot of species that are going to be struggling when we can do the assessments on them in the future. But when you think about the the koalas, you know, we might be that Kangaroo Island population, disease-free, might be a really important population uh, in the future.
0: Is there a chance that, like in the Kangaroo Island um, think with all the stresses at the moment that chlamydia could just show up there again on the
2: well we it would require a source of infection and we right. don't believe there's a source of infection however there is still some uh, evidence to work through or some research to work through to see whether sheep and or cattle might be the source of the chlamydia for koalas has been so on French Island, koalas were colonised from the mainland of Victoria onto French Island, and for the longest possible time, they'd had no chlamydia. As, as, you know, there was no evidence. Not, not that much research was done, but then they would just done research recently, and they've actually found chlamydia, and they think it might be related to the sheep, and this is, is still open to more research, and so. And that's one of the things that we wanted to do more on Kangaroo Island is look at you know, whether the sheep may have been a source of the population. And we've done a mini study so far. We we're trying to compile some of that information. And there seems that there is evidence of chlamydia in sheep on Kangaroo Island. Is it the same chlamydia that causes the chlamydia in the ko- koalas? Not sure yet. We haven't got enough information yet. And what are if they are? What are the transmission routes that could occur towards the koalas? So if there's no no source of infection, then we're safe. We're okay. The source of infection might come from koalas being taken back to Kangaroo Island or taken off and back, or animals moving without good biosecurity, or could the stress in the environment bring it out? Bring it out from sheep
0: and cattle and move over to it Maybe they're dormant somewhere, and it, with it, the stress it, of the situation,
2: it might. It, it would be dormant as in with the sheep but then, then the sheep might but it's the contact the, uh, the contact rates between if there is evidence that it is in the sheep um, and that the sheep are a potential source of chlamydia in koalas and we've still got to work that out um, what mechanisms are there for the contact to occur so they've got to discharge uh, faeces from the sheep and the koalas have got to pick it up or they've got to come in contact there's got to be some sort of contact Whether the bacteria can to move over so you know there's a lot of these sort of things that we want to work through but i think it's really important because this population of koalas at the moment is free of the disease and we should do everything we possibly can to keep it like that free of disease of chlamydia not not maybe other diseases but certainly chlamydia and the chlamydia is no doubt a, a really significant control mechanism on the population of koalas in the eastern states and if we can try and keep that free that would be fantastic because we've then got a source population of disease-free koalas in the future that we can manage appropriately
0: well there's been a ton of money sent over to here from people abroad like millions some some comedian has, has raised 10 million and other people like there is absolutely millions being given to australia at the moment but uh, does that start a worry on its own you don't want that just thrown at a problem um how much planning's got to go into all that money
2: if you were thinking about it from a, a wildlife perspective, if we can if we can talk at it talk about it from there, there's certainly people are, are falling over themselves to try and help with koalas in particular, no, not so much with flying foxes, I have to say, but mostly with koalas because they've become iconic. So you know, if these are, if these koalas there, you know that that sorts out, or sends out all sorts of emotions to, uh, with people. So you know, a lot of people are helping they're vol- volunteering them their time from vets and nurses and members of public cl- collecting browse for the koalas and so on that those animals with a koala rescue organization in town um uh, and also on kangaroo island but but from from my perspective it's it's uh, having a holistic approach to the whole issue we're going to get these problems in the future how can we th- Strategize effectively to ensure that the support from the members of public, international, whatever it is, goes right across the whole spectrum of the time. From the time that those koalas are brought in to the six months after they're released. We always, and I always talk about it, all the effort goes into the front end. Everybody's so angry, wants to do something, feels. Disempowered, once they want to empower themselves by doing something, and then it all comes in. There's this massive effect that occurs right at the beginning, and then over the weeks, that becomes people become a little bit weary of it, become less motivated, you know, bit bit harder life goes on they get on with their lives things things to do yeah you know and we're also it's a holiday time so there's a bit more free time and then you know the the realities of life sink in and then you know that it dissipates all that help and then from from an animal perspective is that we've got to prepare these animals for release because from from my perspective there's absolutely no point in doing any of this thing up front if we're not going to have success when they're released. So we should be thinking about how do we prepare those animals for release when they get over their injuries, how to make sure that they're not habituated to people, how then making sure that they have enough food, going to a habitat, how how to uh, release criteria, look at the habitat that they might be going into and then monitor the success. identify them potentially put colors on some some animals but but certainly identify them so that you can recognize whether they've had success and then monitor that success so that's i think is a really important holistic approach that people need to take and unfortunately unfortunately most people go at the front end and forget the back end and it would be really nice to understand the psychology of how can you maintain that enthusiasm all the way through, not have peaks at the front and troughs at, at the other end, you know, but have that keenness and interest all the way through. And that's from a, a volunteering, supporting perspective. But we need that in the whole spectrum of this climate change debate. Uh, well, it's not a debate, it's science. These, forget that, it's science. We know it's occurring. But how do we get... How, how do we can we use our psychology to influence our leaders our politicians who aren't leading at the moment but need to be leading and needing to be stepping stepping up to be able to produce less how, how can we reduce the effects of climate change how can we you know reduce emissions how can how can we uh, sequester greenhouse gases yeah, how can we work forward in trying to develop new energy sources effective energy sources that means that we're not going to change our lifestyles that much i think there's going to be some sort of lifestyle changes but all those sort of things are going to be thinking thought of so big conversation there from looking after koalas going to you know climate adaptation really so uh i th- i think we need to think about the psychology of these sort of things and, th- and then also think about the psychology of denialism you know climate denialism is, is is rife within the present government and and there's no disputing that there is denialism there and they, they'd like to say that they're not denying it but they they it's quite clear that they are and you know craig kelly and he terrible interview with Piers Morgan in the UK really illustrated the fact that there is a right-wing kind of denialist uh, perspective. But what about the psychology of denialism? How, how does that work? Why is it that people with overwhelming scientific evidence still are willing to deny that climate change is occurring and that it's human-induced? Absolutely overwhelming scientific evidence we have lots of, you know, the, the Australian Academy of Science have just written a piece on the 10th of January saying that this is what the Academy of Science is is advocating in terms of what we need to do in the future, uh, that we need to uh, definitely improve uh, or, or reduce climate, climate emissions, I should say. Um, and, you know, they're the most august body in the whole of the country and the politicians aren't listening to them. Uh, and, you know, uh, part of that is also saying, well, we're not going to have jobs for the future. But then when you read uh, Ross Garno's um, new book on how we can power ourselves into the future, he believes that we've got lots and lots of great opportunities to be world leaders in that alternative power um, framework and that we have these opportunities that we can be leaders why don't we take it why, why, are we, why are we arguing so much and when it comes down to it all I keep thinking about is the Abbots and the, and the Kelly's and the Nick Minchins of this world who have been climate denialists for such a long time is that what about their children and what about their grandchildren Aren't you setting up their children, or you know, in their case, your children, their children, to a future of climate extremes? Aren't you thinking about your family and your the future generations? It doesn't seem that they are. E- either the, either they, they don't care about their children and their future generations, or they've got so much vested interest from from organisations that want to maintain the status quo that they don't care. They're just thinking of the short-term. And that's what, you know, the short-termism of politics is really poor in, in our country. We have a poor democracy. 41% of the population voted for the coal- coalition. 59% didn't vote for the coalition. I think these probably 59% of the population want to see... Changes occurring to a climate change policy but we don't have any influence because we've got this average sort of democracy that really doesn't take into consideration most of the people of the country how do we change that it's very difficult to know how to change the politics.
0: I think, like I said to you, did I? Sorry to interrupt. It. It's just in my mind now. I said to you, like, I think that's naturally changing because I think there's a generation that are coming through that will get into the politics and will change it. But it'd be yeah. really good to change it now and not have to wait yeah. that long. Oh, Sorry.
2: Well, no, I, and I, uh, you know, I, I had to change the politics. You know, I'm I'm a old white male baby boomer. You know, the worst possible. Kind of human, (laughs) probably not as bad as the previous generation that kind of wrecked it for us a little bit, but you know, there's a lot of baby boomer denial, you know, and you know, aging population. But what we're seeing is the younger generation, the amazing Greta Thunbergs and the other extraordinary students within South Australia and Australia that are standing up for climate change, um, change or climate change policy and you know demonstrations occurring all around the world yesterday um, my son went um, yesterday to uh, on friday to a a climate change um, demonstration and uh, it's amazing and heartening to see uh, the younger generation um, getting involved but you know they will be coming through as political uh, leaders or leaders in general over the next 20 years, and that's too long to wait. We need immediate change. And you know, I, I put out on uh, a comment. It might be slightly contentious, but what about a class action against the uh, government for inaction over the past few years, ignoring the science,
0: well, and ignoring and the science? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you'd have said that a month ago or so it would probably almost be Oh, don't be stupid but something's just happened that yeah. actually makes you think well no actually that gets more serious yeah like why not th- why don't things like that happen yeah yeah
2: why can't we hold our uh, mps our we've got a fantastic mp in mayo rebecca sharkey fantastic mm. you know she's awful she, she's <laughs> she's excellent and uh, but we've got She's not in power. She's a, a lone independent MP who can have quite a bit of say, but not enough say in comparison to, you know, the uh, the coalition government that's in at the moment. But, you know, how do you try and get through? But, you know, one of the things is that it might be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway, the Murdoch Press has, has a lot to do with this uh, denialism. You see Murdoch Press in America, UK and... Uh, Australia and they have, we have similar sort of approach. You look at it in uh, Canada. Well, Canada and New Zealand don't have much Murdoch press in those countries, and they have much more progressive approach. Not sure it's a cause and effect, but certainly there might well be some sort of link there. So, you know, we're there's a lot of misinformation going on uh, that's coming out of the press. That is detrimental to our future. And we need to take back that as people. We need to take that back. We need to have a Royal Commission into the media. We need to have a Royal Commission into the bushfires and the causes. And it's essential and it needs to be done now and it needs to be done quickly because I think they're partly connected. You know, like the. There's certainly. our. It, inability to change scott morrison says we only produce 1.3 percent of the world's emissions for 25 million people so when you work that out it's actually per capita we're doing it's say it per person we're, we're it's aware, four times yeah. four times the average person in the world per capita producing emissions in, com- in comparison so you, you can put it like oh, one point, we only produce 1.3 percent of the world's uh, emissions but then you look at that the other way, saying, well, actually, every single person is producing at least four times more emissions than the average person in the world. So we, we need to do, we need to step up. We, Australia needs to step up. We, we can't have these uh, accounting practices that are misleading the world when it comes to the Paris Accord. You know, you can't, we can't do that. Out of 65 countries, we're bottom of the list when it comes to climate policy development in the world. You know, at the bottom of the list, we have to change that. How do we change it? It's very difficult. We need... We, people need to take back control and we need to be looking at reputable sources of information from The Conversation, The Guardian Weekly uh, or Guardian Australia or ABC, BBC, reputable information, Michael West Media... Uh, you know, a variety of different independent information and not listen to the garbage that's lies, misinformation that's produced on things like Sky News or the Daily Telegraph, the Adelaide Advertiser. Random people the, on Facebook. Random people on well, Facebook, it just makes the Australian.
0: It, it makes it so hard. I, I, we had a conversation not long back, Adrian, when I was on the phone to you saying, like, yeah, climate change and that, but then there's people that will put an amazing argument... For someone like me non-scientist someone who's i'll be honest probably struggling a little bit to find truths and find what is the truth and uh, and i was saying that to adrian like because you you say there's this problem but there'll there'll always be someone who will put an amazing argument that goes against that problem and i said how the hell am i meant to understand what's actually going on your answer was absolutely right i think you just said you need to just go back to science is just look at the science not not what everyone like look at the actual science bits and you'll get the facts um, but it's so hard if... well and it's always very it's
2: always very difficult for everybody to go and look at the science all the time mm. so you want to believe in the authenticity of the information in the media where it you know, Facebook and Twitters and, you know, Instagrams and the like, there's a lot of mistruth, misinformation going on there. But you can relate some of that info You don't, don't just listen to some famous person who happens to, you know, sell... You know, clothes or makeup or something like that, Believe, don't believe in them go back to the information, it's hard to change people's uh, perceptions because that is the now, now the new norm people are listening and, and watching and reading stuff on these sort of things But, but we have to go back to the science we have to go back to authentic good quality media outlets to get the real information because if we don't do that we're just fooling ourselves we're all fueling ourselves into the future, into a false sense of security,
0: because mm, they'll use arguments like um, uh, we were speaking earlier. Like there, there's certain people that say, "Oh, you know, climate change is making such a dramatic change to our weather at the moment." But then there's people that say, "Yeah, but four thousand years ago, we had, or how you know, over the last four thousand years, we've had this exact weather pattern happen a few times. It's happened mm-hmm. before, and and you, they show graphs and that, but it's not as easy as that that could convince a lot of people that oh so this is actually the norm but i think like you said adrian but it's happening more frequently there's a lot more things that have changed as well isn't there?
2: well it's it's Mm. more frequent it's more the the, uh, bushfire season is more extended we've getting you know water rise water rising Mm -hmm. i was reading about the thwaite glacier in Antarctica which holds most of the water that whole Antarctic area. It's melting they're digging down into the Thwaites Glacier to find that these great big holes where they thought it was ice is now disappeared and water's rising you know these CO2 emissions are 420 ish. When I grew up when I was learning about science at school it was 300 parts per million, now it's 420 parts per million and so when you look at how the greenhouse gas effect works, anybody wants to know about climate change I would advise going on to the Australian Academy of Science website and they have great in-depth information on climate change, all the causes what the effects it's having and what can be done about it and also, a bunch of great videos that they produce, top class stuff, absolutely scientifically validated information that gives you a clearer understanding of what's going on. You know, some of it is quite you know, detail heavy, but if you can read through it, you can actually find out that these things are true. We need to find authentic, important, good quality sources of information to help us make the decisions to make the right selection for general elections and we have this short-termism that really doesn't think about things in the long term you know we we have a 3-year political cycle which is no good for anybody no no good for anybody we need the we need all politicians to believe in the scientists that they have got the best future of Australian people at heart,
1: not the politicians. And even if it's just the precautionary principle as well, you know, if if you can have faith in a book like the Bible, like a lot of our politicians do, maybe have a bit of faith in the scientists. Okay, maybe maybe they're right. What's the harm in acting upon it?
2: Well, well, the scientists are right. The only better thing than science is better science. You know, (laughs) alternatives to that don't exist. Your your opinion, or uh, you know, a politicians' opinion without reading the science is is, is worth nothing. And I, th- I think Ross Garno, Ross Garno said he in his report from I think on the s- state of the climate in two thousand and eight suggested that the bushfire seasons. Uh, the ferocity and the length of them should increase, and you should start to see some of the changes occurring by the year 2020. <laughs> How prescient was he in those viewpoints? And what what, he, what was his comment, Adrian?
1: He said, "If you ignore the science when you build a plane, the plane crashes." Yeah. So don't. Wow. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so so don't ignore the science when with climate
1: change or the environment collapses and it's funny that we're even arguing about it in that how can people still ignore it it's so strange (laughs) (laughs) i mean if the climate's warming people are arguing well it's okay let's let's say you you can believe that we can't change your mind but the climate's warming so let's act
2: well and that's the thing is if you don't do anything what if you as a denialist were wrong we bug it in the future. Why can't you just say, well, there might be some evidence and therefore go some t- way towards it. But no, they can't even do that, you know. But the fact is, the science, there is no argument over it anymore. It's just trying to get people to understand and the politicians to act in the right way for the future yes we only produce a small amount of emissions but we need to pull our weight into the future or else we're going to have major major struggles and we're going to see summers like this
1: continue or possibly even get worse in the future it's absolutely terrifying and we know we've got poor leadership because we take any environmental issue like um, we hear that we've got 60 years of topsoil left if we continue farming how we farm and there's no initiative to change that you know it's really really expensive to buy organic food that's farmed correctly or sustainably but there's no, you don't hear that on the vote, you know when, when, we, when we stand up to vote what are the, what are the voting platforms healthcare, roads Education, All these things are important, don't get me wrong. You know, the ageing, uh, special needs, all these things are important, but they're all anthropocentric. What type of world are we going to have in a few years if we don't look at the environment um, and these big-picture things? And that's what you've been talking a lot about today is the big-picture.
2: And for sure, those things are important for people on a day-to-day basis. But we don't have this long-term viewpoint, and we need to have a long-term viewpoint because our children and our grandchildren are going to suffer the consequences of our inactions in a a way that we can't imagine. And it's going to be hard to change it. The
1: the longer we wait, the harder it's going to change. Yeah, we need to be crisis ready. I mean, even even if there was no finger pointing at us, we have to be aware that there's always cataclysms. Not to say that we're not making that worse, but we're, we're just sort of... We seem to think that the world's bopped along like this forever. We don't realise that every civilization's ended somehow. We're just not prepared. I mean, I don't want to terrify school kids, but, I mean, you know...
2: They, they're already terrified. They're, yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. Hmm. I mean, Shell Exxon produced reports in 1982 or so saying that fossil fuels were causing increased CO2 and the effects of that in the future were going to be X, Y and Z, 1982. CSRU produced a report on the greenhouse effect in 1989. We've known about these sort of things for a long time. We've just just decided as a species, particularly the political arm of our species, that we're going to ignore it. And we've been ignoring it at our peril. This summer is an indication of what might happen in the future, harbinger for the future.
0: We're yes. not even in our hottest, driest month yet, which is normally
2: no. February. Yep, yeah. I know. Scary. It is. It's very, very. People possibly scary.
0: should be scared. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I am. I'm, well, I,
2: I, I'm yeah. scared, and, and mm. then we come back to what we talked about at the beginning. You, you know, I'm furious. I'm anxious. I've got eco anxiety. I've got eco-depression i'm thinking about what my son's life's going to be like in the future i've heard of i've heard of people that are scared to have children Mm. and our our species depends (laughs) sorry (laughs) no or or possibly not in in that context but the fact the fact is it's a it's a, still a natural process to have children. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go
1: extinct, but yep. <laughs> we don't want
2: to go extinct, and we're we, <laughs> less, folks. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not, not going to go extinct yet. A, one, a, a friend of mine who I, I spoke to uh, in South Africa explained it like this: that humans, yeah. in our form, been around a few thousand years,
1: two hundred, three hundred thousand, yeah. I reckon, don't they? Yeah
2: not a long time really and the earth mother nature gives we're a small minute component of that yes we've manipulated the environment to the extent that we're going to we're damaging it and we're causing it earth will stay it will change the insects will survive a lot of other species survive quite possibly humans might become extinct and we're talking you know, thousands of years probably but n- nature has this cycle it buffers against all these perturbations that occur and in this instance because of humans ha- affecting the world and it will
1: survive the world will survive we might just not be a part of it it's the, not the end of the world it's the end of our world
0: Yeah.
1: yeah very much so yeah, and look, and I totally get that, and I, I, think along those lines, like if the dinosaurs didn't go extinct, we wouldn't be here right now having this conversation, probably if it wasn't that meteorite. Yeah, in, quite possibly. I mean, in Mexico was it? I don't know yeah. there's one or two around the world. Yeah, that was the one that they reckon sixty-five plus million years ago wiped them yeah. out. Or we might be shrews having a nocturnal conversation in a tree hollow at night. Like With jazz hands, no one could see that. With jazz hands, sorry, <laughs> I was doing jazz hands. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. But, well, I guess we should be concerned about, like you say, our timeframes, our future generations. I mean, it's just a shame to have to see and know that our grandchildren are going to know about these animals that we can enjoy now that may not be there then. And you, know, you look in the last 10,000 years, 20,000 years, all oh, the megafauna species that we've lost, and it's kind of sad. And, you know, we still uh, think about, so it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's hard for a lot of people. I, th- I think we can all agree. I think most people like animals and like biodiversity. I think there are people that are definitely anthropocentric. You know, it's all about people. There are people, and that's where leadership should be. We're leading people, and we used to, because we used to have to, and that's what we still should do. But now people are becoming animal centric, which is great. Let's care about animals. But we need to have that big picture, ecocentric view where we care about the ecosystem. And the ecosystem does its thing. Um, it's like, sort of analogous to like you got a garden with a couple of trees in it and, they, and they're there but when you've got the ecosystem it's taking care of itself it, it just self-propagates and that's what we've got to think about and protecting that that's my focus because i can't focus on much more than that i'm simple
2: and i know well but i think i think that is a, a really valid you know whether you're simple or not, Adrian, I'm pretty simple as well. Is that you? Kind of not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> but but maybe well. I'm, I'm no comment. But maybe maybe <laughs> you, you know just... that that you know we're all concerned about it. I've been you know I made it my life's kind of career to to try and help biodiversity as much as I possibly could. You know, in, in, as a veterinarian, maybe I've contributed a little bit who knows but you know do through doing research and all those sort of things but you know through advocacy now and being able to teach at, at university and and pass on some information that i've i've gathered is that we need to care for our environment we need to care for the biodiversity and that is essential you know we we have lost too many species we need to do much more and you know there's some great projects that are going on in south australia at the moment the introduction of quolls uh, up into the flinders ranges and the rewilding projects in the southern York peninsula and you know it's a, a huge topic of discussion in the future but but it kind of concerns me a little bit that we're burning our environment that we're not going to have a place to put these animals you know so we've got to, got to change these the land management practices you know that's got to be one of the things that we've got to really concentrate land management Practices into the future, yeah. Why, why on earth are we using water to irrigate cotton or rice in Australia? It's Australia. It makes yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. We've got to start being more sensible. But then you take the human factor into, it and you think, well, people have been farmers on the land growing these crops for a long time, but they're not. It's not sensible. It's not practical. How do we? How do we change people's work practices? How do we reduce the coal mining? How do we uh, move people from, which is their major concern, will be income, looking after their family, food on the table, roof over over their heads. How do we transition those people from coal uh, mining to other jobs? How do we transition people from rice growing and cotton growing to other jobs as well, in a quick way, but in a safe unfair way that doesn't disenfranchise great selections of people across the country? And that's one of the big challenges
1: that we need to think about. It certainly is. But one of the frustrations is that we know we could... There are people out there that are smart enough to tackle those issues if our leaders decided that's the way we need to go. We've got everything we need, the expertise, the know-how, the money. You
2: know, I go back to that book that Garner has produced in 2019, looking at the opportunities that we have got to be leaders. There are opportunities. In these, always, in in a crisis or in a situation where there's problems, there's opportunities. And we've got to be smart enough to take those opportunities. I think we can. I'd love to be driving an electric car. I'd love to be off the grid i'd like to be able to think that i could be off grid so that i can still look after myself and my family and 118 bats and 118 bats at the moment thankfully they don't need too much electricity at the moment but you know just those sort of things um uh, would be wonderful why, why can't we transition to that you know those are the sort of things that we should be thinking
1: about yeah it should be it should be um, more expensive to buy things that are bad for the environment. Yep. that's how we can tell one hundred and twenty five percent our leadership is non-existent because we see these things that are deleterious to the environment happening every day, and there's no plan to move away from it when we have the technology to move away from it. twenty
2: nine billion dollar fossil fuel subsidy is given by the government and they're looking at giving upwards of two billion dollars for bushfire regeneration after the these fires that have gone through helping support community so you know where, where is the logic there 29 billion dollars spent on fossil fuel subsidies we're giving was it 20 million oh there was a conversation about 20 million dollars was being given to getting more planes to help with dropping of the water droppers water, water droppers Twenty million dollars, twenty-nine billion dollars in subsidies versus twenty million dollars. You know the the scale of the thing is like a joke, really. And we need to confront these issues.
0: Yeah, quickly because it's all happening quickly. I was just thinking back. I come from the print trade. I was print and media trade, uh, print and bindery. And back in the day, like we, we went through the stage where they were going for recycled paper, the the sustainable forest paper inks to cut out all the chemicals and make everything as good do you know we had a standing joke every time something new for the environment came out we used to just have a standing joke of ah don't know why we bother it won't affect us it'll be our grandchildren and do you know what it isn't it's 20 years down the line and it's affecting us yeah you know and it's only 20 years since we were making it was a joke like Mm. but to a certain extent we actually there's none of us would have said yeah but it won't make a difference in 20 years like, it's changing rapidly.
2: Well, they they talk about the, uh, you know, the background extinction rate as being ten thousand times more faster than the background extinction rate, and if you if you can multiply that across everything, you know, all the changes, so many changes have been occurring over the last 20, 30 years. You know, in the scale of humans, that's a very small period of time, but we're seeing those changes occurring from when we were young to when we were older, massive changes in everything that's happened. But the environment's the one that suffered the most and that the world's you know human population is gone through the roof as well. So so yes it's it's occurring ridiculously quickly. Do we have the capability to reverse that in that uh, as quick a time? No. We don't have the ability to reverse some of the changes because those changes will take a long lot longer to reverse than they've been to cause and so we need to do something immediately but we're still going to see the effects of what's happened up until now continuing into the future because it's like the titanic change the, the direction to the titanic it takes a long time to do it you know and that's the same same effect with the
1: climate you know
2: is that lag lag phase yeah
1: and even the young people today that are talking about loss of species their normal is very different to what normal would have been when we were younger walking around the bush and seeing reptiles and birds and mammals and then you compare that to 50 years ago and 100 years ago and the baseline that people go from is just depleting all the time some good news though because let's have some of that we're hour in we'll do some good news um (laughs) is it andrew murray the biologist studies the long-footed potteroos oh yeah So most of their habitat was burnt out, but he's managed to pick some up on his cameras, and I think he's saying they perhaps went down wombat burrows, which is pretty exciting. A lot of species (laughs) are hidden under, so wombats are good. You hear that, Snuffles? You're useful. Wombats are
2: great because they're kind of ecological engineers, and quite a few species use them. And I don't know whether I ever told you about the work we did on Wedge Island where. Do you know Wedge Island? It's uh, off the coast Tell you about betongs on there These betongs and these wombats and these brush tailed rock wallabies and the wombats these were introduced there as a mechanism in the 70s and 80s and we went back to have a look at them on Wedge Island so this is between the bottom end of York Peninsula and their Peninsula just in the middle and it's shaped like a wedge, beautiful island great place and both the betongs and the Brush-tailed rock wallabies use the wombat burrows, plus all sorts of other species, penguins and uh, shearwaters, as well. So you know the great little ecosystem engineers are uh, wombats. Yeah. and they they survive because they can go underground. You know, wombats are always going to survive if they fire went through their habitat generally speaking, because it can go underground.
1: And it's also interesting they've got really low oxygen requirements. Yeah. When we um, x-rayed snuffles, we put her under, and Oliver was, was gassing snuffles with the gas, and I was starting to feel sleeping on the other side of the room, and she's still wide awake looking around. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the uh, species we've lost the burrowing bet used to be in SA and uh, the Northern Territory. It's gone, but its burrows are still around. Like in the Riverland, you've still got their burrows deep into the limestone, yeah. and even in Central Australia. And we were at a Komodo dragon conference recently, and there was a girl who was doing a PhD on the parentes, and they were using this extinct marsupial's burrows yeah. uh, to this day. Well, amazing!
2: That's yeah. great. Yeah. So the, you know, the, and that's where the ecosystem management comes in. That all these species are playing a part in. The landscape and you take one of them away or take a few of them away then it makes the environment poorer for it and that's why they
1: all need to be interconnected of course absolutely have you looked into those uh slightly off subject but those fire bunkers for people you can put on your property have you ever looked at those seriously uh,
2: not not seriously i've seen i've, I've seen, seen I've two seen them. Yeah. yeah yeah and uh in the some, some flat fire there's a a guy that I met and went to his property a few days after, and he survived because he had the bunker. It was 60 degrees when it went, it burnt the grass over the top of his bunker. He went in there. Uh, his house was fine, but he lost a lot of sheds, and he you was know, just desperately worried that, you know, he was scared, as we would all be. Uh, and then Terry Reardon has got one, and uh, you know they they've used it recently, so. They're essential, I think. Yeah. If you have the opportunity to build one, I think you've got great landscape to build into the f- face of a cliff or something like that, where you can get the protection of the land around it. Uh, cost a lot of money, apparently, mm. um, but and there's not a huge amount of endorsement by fire services for the particular types but i think that needs to come because i think we need to think about that in the future and have bigger bunkers they use the big bunkers in the southern ocean sanctuary lodge i think it's called down in kangaroo island that got you know burnt out all the people were saved because they went into the bunkers there so
1: i think they're important things to consider yeah that's some good news Raptor right today maine didn't burn down They grabbed every one of their animals, every bird, reptile, even their invertebrates, yeah, packed them all away, um, got the safety, yeah, twice they completely packed up everything. Yeah. Wow,
2: thank God for that, I was wondering about Dave and Mm. how he was going to go, crikey. Pandana Park, uh, Wildlife Park uh, was saved as well and the guys there... Yeah, Sam stayed to fight.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty emotional on the TV when I saw him the other night. Yeah. Well, they've been amazing looking after all the wildlife there, and I think they've got quite a lot of support nationally and internationally for what they're doing. So good on them for being tough dudes in a horrible situation. Amazing work. And Mogo Zoo, you know Mogo Zoo. Yeah. Always burnt out. Mogo yeah. Zoo is a fantastic yeah. zoo. Um, and you know the videos of the guys you know, rallying and rallying around, and they they told the local people apparently this is what I heard was you know come into the zoo, we've got assets here, we've got people, we're going to defend it. Come into the zoo. Yeah, I, th- I don't think they let them into the gorilla enclosure where the gorillas were there, but mm-hmm. but but go in there, take your pets in as well. You know do, you know just do what you've got to do because we think it's a safe area and it was a safe area, mm-hmm. and so a lot of a lot of Mogo disappeared you know all that beautiful i mean the whole of that new south wales coast is just just beautiful
0: you know unless i was
2: following that a little bit yeah. with
0: chad zookeeper yeah. Chad. Yeah. yeah yeah
2: so they survive they survive the problem is now <laughs> there's no tourism so there's no you know there's not going to be ink there's nobody going to be visiting that area because they go to the zoo after visiting the area they're going to the beach or whatever you know people are going to be bunkered down they're going to go home they're going to stay away international tourists aren't going to go you know so they're going to how are any of these businesses going to get up on their feet again how how are they going to do it they're going to need support hopefully from the government over the next six months or so because people will be out of jobs you know and hopefully tourism like still get out there Try. well it will be it it, will be fantastic if if Mm. tourists do come know back but I can quite easily understand why they wouldn't come back you know and it's you know it's going to be a, a philanthropic approach to tourism <laughs> you know I'm going mm. to come over because a, I want to see a bit of the countryside I hope I don't want to be depressed by seeing this blackened scorched earth but I'm there to try and help the local people you know hopefully people will think
1: like that
0: and it does help for sure mm.
1: a lot of the Australian bush too comes back beautifully after fire I know that's um...
0: but it needs rain. Okay, it needs
2: rain. it does come back, but it needs rain. So if it rain doesn't come back, are they, those plants, trees, all going to die? A lot of places. Yeah. And, we, and we've
0: just mm. had these fires at a, at a bad time because we know yeah. that there's a big dry time ahead of us as yeah. well. So it's probably. Yeah, I guess that's.
2: That is true. I'm hoping that uh, this um, lack of rain that's occurred across the country, that you know the late monsoons up in the Northern Territory and this south indian dipole uh, oscillation or whatever it might be called might mean that some of the rains come are coming a bit later that's what i'd like to think but you know there's some sort of information saying that there might be a bit more rain coming in the future but all those monsoonal rains that come from the indian ocean through to northern territory then filter down across to queensland and new south wales and victoria and so on ultimately Little bit in South Australia, not so much in, <laughs> in West Australia, but that you know, hopefully, that means that we might get somewhere in the future, which would
1: be lovely to see. There has been talk of flooding, too. Sorry to yeah. be that guy that says,
0: Well, I think Northern Territory are facing their first monsoon at the moment that yep. they're really worried about because they think it's going to be a, a, a pretty hard time up there. An,
2: an island oh, ridiculous, an island off the coast of. Uh, Darwin, off the Northern Territory Coast, I can't remember the name, had 562 mils of rain in 24 hours. Wow. Two days ago. And, you know, and Darwin was getting a lot, but nothing like that. So the world is upside down. We're getting worse floods, worse rains, worse bushfires, drier landscape,
1: different times of the year. It's all upside down. The good news is we are overdue for a, an ice age. A glacial <laughs> event. So. Well, it's not going to happen this
2: afternoon.
0: You're really trying to push the good news. Yeah. <laughs> there you are.
2: So, it the-
1: was good news about the, the long-footed potter, so, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nothing, nothing else, though.
2: <laughs> well, good, good news is that we're trying to put some sprinklers and misters up, which will be bloody fantastic for the flying foxes.
1: That, I think that'll be a real success, that will. Well, uh, yeah.
2: I'd, like, I'd like to think it will be, but you know, I mean, we can only try and see if we can get some uh, monitoring data and some. Yeah, you know, the problem is you can't have a control. I, ideally, from a scientific perspective, you'd like to have a control system and a treatment system. You know, the control system. We don't have another. They're going to jump
1: ship and go to the <laughs> That's right. yeah
2: Yeah, we don't have a. We don't have a camp of bats that. We've got to compare with you see, so, so we're going to have to try and work
1: around that. But I guess your control has being the history up to now.
2: Yeah, the history plus also uh, the bit watching the behaviour. You know, just to say, well, it would be we, we've we've not done a, a scientific assessment of the behaviour during the heat stress events. You know, no one's been there with a clipboard saying, "Oh, these bats are coming down here at this time." Blah blah blah. But you know, you can do that with the sprinklers on to say that they've come down and and you know, relating it to the temperature. It would be nice to have done a before and after, you know, without sprinklers. But now you've got the idea that you're gonna put sprinklers and misters in place, then to think about not putting it on would be, you know, meaning that those bats would die when you can't really it's not conscionable to do that, is it really? So so great that we'll big work Organizations
0: like SA Water are getting involved to sort that out. Oh, yeah. well. yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really good. That's great. It's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic, and you know, WOMAD, because they, you know, w- want to support it um, because of their environmental credentials. Plus, also the Botanic Gardens, City Council. You know, they're all all on board. So we're having a meeting on Thursday uh, to try and make it
1: specifically happen. Wayne, thanks for coming on, mate. Can Always I? a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Can I just add in a, a massive thanks to CFS, all the fireys, all the volunteers, all the animal rescuers, like everyone out there who's doing all
1: that stuff. Absolutely. Bloody good on you. You got a sign in front of you. was the sign in your house, say, Wayne? Yeah, just saying thanks to the firefighters. We just yep. felt that was a minuscule thing that we can
2: do, um, and support everybody. I think it's sad times. Hopefully this eco-depression eco-anxiety will alleviate itself um i'm hoping that people will have the strength and passion to maintain this this interest and that we can effect change for the better
1: in the future yeah awesome. i'm optimistic yeah so I'm, great thanks for listening